Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And I wasn't bustling him at all. That's Chris. Bye-bye, Chris. It's Jan Bartlett for Tuesday Home Time, my last one for the year. So today, life extension for weapon systems instead of life extension for the world. We're speaking with Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. A bit of 3CR history with former station manager Bruce Francis. The work of Olive Kids with Muhammad and Noir. The Middle East as the year finishes with Dr Tim Anderson. But first, I nearly forgot Kevin today. I thought he'd done his last program last week, but he's here. And this is the last one of the year for Kevin. A week, Jane, listener, when the government reassured us through its actions, through direct inaction, that we have nothing to fear from so-called climate change, proved that former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses was right, and don't we know it, climate change is crap. Climate change is crap. But if, let's be very hypothetical here, the crap isn't crap and dem icebergs are frying, nonetheless, Minister for Fossils and Renewable Fossils, Josh Pry, dem icebergs, would have felt the icebergs bit cold as, as big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull tossed him overboard into the freezing Antarctic political turbulence. Josh making the big, big mistake of suggesting just maybe a review of climate policy should just perhaps not to be taken too seriously, but just perhaps include charging big polluters a little fee if they big, big, big pollute. Sending back benches like poor Corey St. Bernardi and the team into a frenzy, their temperatures rising at the thought that people might think the planet's temperature was doing likewise. Thus, that man of principle, Malcolm, caught poor Josh unawares and flung him into the briny. There is no way I would support the position I used to support. Malcolm was a true leader. Let me make it clear, everything's on the table in this review, other than any risk of big polluters paying to big pollute. Uh, And that's obviously my position, direct inaction. Paying the big polluters to big pollute will allow us to meet our commitment to pay the big polluters to big pollute, Josh echoed before Malcolm ordered him to go and dry himself and stop flooding the room. Uh, But I did, Josh blurted. Then where's all this water coming from? Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist, who knows there is no such thing as climate change, knows 99.9% of climate scientists have no idea what they're talking about, said Tiny had originated the review back in his roaringly successful Big Supremo days, but only to prove direct inaction was working and nothing more needed to be done. Working, usual suspect columnist, working against what? Surely you're not suggesting there is a problem to work against, the no problem to address problem. Hope he's not suggesting there is a problem, because surely so wise a man wouldn't be caught in a contradiction, would he? 
Then again, compared with where the US of the UN of the US of the world is heading by this time next year, direct inaction could look like state of the world art on addressing the crap as big supremo elect Donald Trample the Paw prepares to appoint a fossil, Scott prove it it isn't true, as fossil secretary and fossil supremo of Hex on the Planet Mobile Prophets as secretary of world state Rex Tillerson, so called perhaps because he'll be the tiller man at the tiller as the water rises, assuring us the water is not rising. We have no proof this water is rising, so let's make the most of it. Let's see it as an opportunity. An opportune opportunity, I'm sorry, an inopportune opportunity, I'll say that again, listeners, an inopportune opportunity to paraphrase Al Gore. On the usual suspects, marionette master, dishonour among thieves when thieves fall out. As the Lord Rupert of Wapping and Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax media empires clash over porn allegations. Lord Rupert stable claiming the Falfax property website had used porn sites to boost its numbers. Property porn, our own Wapping sin screamed at us, although the biggest expose was run in the True Blue Aussie Trillion with the big red true blue Aussie up the top. And Falfax denies the claim and claims in turn Lord Rupert ran the story even though it, Falfax, had assured him it did not utilise a porn site even accidentally. Now I raise this because I can understand Lord Rupert's disgust. One example cited young Asian women in various stages of undress being subjected to masochistic acts alongside aggressive, violent language to describe women, his lackey Juno wrote. Such disgust, the denial obviously went over his distressed head, because we can but begin to comprehend how a man who for years financed the big loss-making true blue Aussie trillion with the big red through his biggest money spinner, Truth, what a clever satirical title, Truth. We had a laugh, didn't we? And the London Sun and non-news of the world, former non-news, forced to close because of hack journalism, which not one person in the empire above the level of junior cleaner had the slightest idea about. Mastheads that would never dream of exploiting women. Sexist language describing page after page of women in various stages of undress. Lord Rupert would never exploit such sexism to generate his wealth. So we can understand his sensitivities so abraded by a competitor descending to such depths. And that's the truth. The Lord Rupert, no tits and bums truth. Yes, when thieves fall out, dishonour among thieves. Two days into the week and Lord Rupert, through his quality product, The Whopping Sin, is in full flight as he continues his righteous crusade to prove the people got democracy wrong, abused the democratic process in the last state election, wrong, 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 even though Lord Rupert told us day after day how to vote. He won't forgive us and we can't blame him. The pejorative Dan, the man we know as Who Who. Yesterday, P1 Scoop, Dan's Uni Purge. Universities plead to Big Supremo after job chaos. Chancellors in revolt after ministers backflip. Plus, get set for hell on roads.
Then this morning, exclusive Dial M for moot mutiny. Big Supremo orders probe into ministers' mobile phones. Bid to stop leaks is leaked by insulted cabinet members. And that's just warming up. Wait for the rest of the week. In fact, if when we return in February, we just report the P1 pejorative Dan stories between now and then, home time's two hours won't be long enough. On Who, Who and Long, the long arm of the law we mentioned last week, Who, Who promising heaps and heaps of extra, uh, sorry, forces of law and order to be released onto the streets to preserve the peace, abate the terror to venture into the streets reported by Lord Rupert by, as we said, arresting dangerous criminals like African kids committing serious offences such as walking down the street to buy a carton of milk. Even better news, what a boon to those companies protecting us through guns, batons, sharp boots, tasers, capsicum spray, handcuffs and all the paraphernalia our proud forces of law and order strapped to their bodies like suicide bombers. But we know in this case they are making it safe for us to go out on the streets again. Lord Rupert ran this big picky of all these coppers brimming with all that peaceful equipment, guns, tasers, spray, batons, smiling at us reassuringly, and I thought, don't smiling, heavily armed paramilitary, uh, sorry, coppers, make us feel secure. Thank you, hoo-hoo, but bad luck it hasn't made, won't make Lord Rupert any friendlier to your out-of-control socialism. Meanwhile, the Minister for Finances, uh, sorry, Finances, Matthias Rotten Tuber, having assured us during the election campaign True Blue Aussie would be back in surplus by 2020, now won't put a date on it. Just an assurance we will be back in surplus, so he must think it's going to happen sooner. And the best way to bolster public coppers so they can have a surplus, they, backed up by expert exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all, assure us is to slash taxes on those who don't pay them in the first place, showing why Matthias and big economic gurus scuttled them more less than our economic gurus, experts on the greatest little economic order. Uh, so we raise taxes from those who can't avoid, avoid paying taxes to provide the services government is supposed to provide. Exactly, including corporate welfare for those who don't pay taxes, a fine example of egalitarianism, of helping the riffraff feel useful, feel they're making a contribution from their miserable lives, although with our government no one should feel miserable in this great country. No, no, good point. But, but if taxes and government revenue are to provide essential services, isn't a surplus simply government revenue that is not spent on what it was raised to do, intended to do? So, sorry, I don't follow. It's money we don't spend in the interests of those we don't spend it on so we can maintain our AAA rating, which is good for all of us. Oh, OK. So what's the benefit of our AAA rating, by the way? It allows us to borrow for government works at a lower interest rate. Uh, and how do we put the AAA rating at risk? Uh, by borrowing for government works. Uh, and these ratings agencies, obviously economic gurus like you, obviously, then how come they miss seeing the global financial crisis coming by a mere 100%? 
Look, once it came, they became experts at advising and directing the world what to do at no more than their usual fee and downgraded many countries for being so incompetent and not seeing it coming. Oh, it's a delicate flower, isn't it? Thank goodness we've got Matthias and Scuttle them and those respectable agencies standing on the paws, money's et al, to do it all for us. Speaking of do, I'm planning to do very little for the next few weeks that were or will be. But um, until then, thanks, listener, for putting up with this rubbish and let's all have a wonderful break in this capitalist paradise. Good afternoon. Now, before you panic, he will be on City Limits tomorrow. So that's Mr Kevin Healy doing City Limits for the final time next Wednesday, which is tomorrow. But he won't be back until, I'm pretty sure it's the end of January for Tuesday home time. Have a good holiday. Freedom and safety are two of the most important values shared by our community. As the largest independent human rights organisation for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre delivers more services on the ground and more free hours of support to where it's needed most. A donation of $20 to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides two weeks of food for a family over the holiday season. Please donate now at asrc.org.au or call 1300-DONATE. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a proud 3CR supporter. From the Nevada desert to Moscow and St. Petersburg, that was the journey by Voices for Creative Nonviolence co-coordinator Brian Terrell in October this year. And as Brian will explain, the connection might not at first be obvious, but there are certainly fears that pouring a nation's wealth into a program of life extension programs for weapons systems is nothing short of madness. Brian, you've been a peace and anti-war activist for over 40 years. I'd imagine the visit to the Nevada test site in October was not your first to a nuclear testing site? Well, I've been at this for a long time. In fact, I've been back and forth to the nuclear test site since the 1980s. I heard of while we were there that they were uh, actively testing just before our demonstration, they had, the Air Force had dropped two fake nuclear weapons, two dummies, 700-pound bombs without nuclear warheads. One was an earth penetrator, and the other is a so-called tactical version of the B-61, which is the big strategic nuclear bomb from the Cold War era. To call it tactical, I don't know what that means, but these, you know, this is a very serious act of preparation for war and of uh, provocation, especially to Russia right now and to China as well. But of course, it was reported simply as making sure that nuclear weapons stay safe, a strange concept for me to, to understand in itself. But just as we were leaving for Russia, that this was the 8th of October, and then by the 12th, we were in Russia, and we were hearing about, in the American press, about preparations being made for war there, and it was reported that there was uh, massive civil defense drills, 40 million people. Some reports were saying that 40 million were being activated, being actually evacuated from major cities. Of course, we didn't, we didn't see any of that. Russian friends we met and talked to, we all asked them the questions about that. And they would just look at us with you know, incredulity that, that a 
you know, there, uh, I think, uh, for the Russians, especially war with the United States, is very, very far from their minds, and there isn't any kind of preparation going on that, 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 of the massive scale anyway that we, we heard about. Looked into it further and found that this was simply a, an annual exercise that uh, local and federal governments there do, as many governments do, have a uh, review of their civil defense and emergency plans for man-made and natural disasters. And even though this may have involved a territory where 40 million people live, probably only a few dozen people knew about it. You know, people in the police department, fire departments, and hospitals. And, uh, you know, actually this, uh, this year's tests were actually uh, smaller than, than in previous years, not much less being ramped up in a war frenzy. Can I take you back to the Nevada desert? How close to these test sites are people allowed? The nuclear test site is massive. It's a huge chunk of the desert. What about the Indian people whose land it was? I wouldn't put it in the past tense because legally it is the uh, property by treaty of the Western Shoshone Nation. The sovereignty was never, never abrogated or even questioned. And since the mid-1980s, thousands of people have been arrested. In fact, uh, last month I was arrested there for, I couldn't count the number of times. And when the police arrest you, they, they even ask you for your permit from the Western Shoshone. The Western Shoshone issued demonstrators permits to be on their land. And the police accept those as uh, identification. And no one has been prosecuted in many, many years. And there's some speculation the reason might be that some judge might decide that uh, we're not trespassing after all because uh, this piece of land is not controlled by the Department of Energy or the National Nuclear Security Agency, but by the Western Shoshone, who who gave us permission to be there. So what where we're able to get is just uh, on the the periphery, and uh, there's a long, long road leading into the desert, into this place, which has been seen more nuclear weapons detonations than any other spot on the planet. Where are the Native American people now? They're in various places around in you know, Nevada and Utah and. Uh, various places. This is not the, the whole extent of their their nation, but it, but it is a place that's very, very sacred. And, and uh, the Native people, the, the Shoshone, are uh, very, very anxious to get it back, very emotional over the, the desecration, the destruction that's, that's being done. There's, uh, but the uh, prospects of it being returned to its rightful owners are not very good. How do... Tests such as the ones that were there in October fit in with the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty? Yeah, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, there are many ways in which it's being, you know, that, that the, the rule of law is being stretched at least by what's going on at the test site. One of the issues is that they're still doing subcritical tests, as they say, in which they bring nuclear material just before the point of detonation, and then they're able to use their computers to figure out what would be going on next, which is something, the technology that other nations don't have, and they consider this a, a violation of the spirit of the treaty anyway. And also, the just these tests, like what happened with the dropping these fake bombs, you know, in the words of the, the National Nuclear Security Administration, they said uh, such 
testing is a part of the qualifications process of current alterations and life extension programs for weapon systems. So they're uh, testing these without, uh, yeah, and their mission is to uh, maintain the stockpile, they call it even stockpile stewardship, without explosive underground nuclear testing. So really they found a way to do tests without uh, specifically violating the, the treaty. And the, uh, what happened in the dropping these bombs, very curiously, they use this language all the time now about life extension programs for weapon systems. Now, we're supposed to be looking at uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons and you know, life extension at a time when life on the planet is in jeopardy that uh, the United States now, these programs of refurbishing and renewing, uh, keeping our stockpile, pursuing the stewardship of the stockpile of nuclear weapons, the United States has pledged to uh, spend uh, about a trillion dollars over the next couple of decades pursuing this, you know, pursuing the life extension of nuclear weapons. When was the decision made to go to Russia, and who did you go with? Well, a number of friends who went to Russia in uh, June in a larger delegation, Kathy Kelly from Voices of Creative Nonviolence, our colleague, was one of them, and uh, many other friends thought it was very effective. You know, this is a time when the, uh, the tensions are riding high. Some people think that uh, the silver lining of a Trump presidency, that the tensions with Russia would be eased, and I have no confidence that that's going to happen, that the uh, saber-rattling is very frightening. In June, there was a huge NATO exercise in Poland on the Russian border, and tens of thousands of troops from NATO countries, including thousands from the United States. They called this uh, Operation Anaconda, which, of course, has only one meaning in Anaconda, the state that surrounds its victim and squeezes it to death. And we have these kinds of exercises regularly along the borders of, of Russia. Ever since the Soviet Union fell, there have been you know, NATO and Western countries have been you're moving in closer and closer, and it's very frightening. So voices does things on a small level, and you know, we took a lot of tips and met a lot of the people that contacted our friends who went in June made. Uh, and we kept a very, very low profile, and our, we had a very nice group. We had uh, myself, I live in Iowa, and a woman named Erica Brock, who's from New York City, and she's in her early 30s, and David Smith Ferry, who's from California, and Susan Clarkson, who's an activist with voices in the United Kingdom. She lives in, in Bradford, England. We uh, met in Moscow and spent oh, about five or six days there, then another five or six days in St. Petersburg. We met with all kinds of people. We visited even uh, homeless shelters and uh, visited the local Quaker community in Moscow. We did see some some of the museums and sites, and uh, we're able to find ourselves in different people's living rooms and kitchens. Uh, we did a lot of uh, 
listening. You know, at one occasion, we did speak at a uh, language school with a group of students, which was really good. But but mostly that was about the most formal uh, meeting that we we had with anyone. Are the people that you spoke to apprehensive about the future? Yes, they are. Like I think people everywhere. I I think in in Russia though, their their apprehensions are more about the economic future and uh, sanctions that are being brought against Russia by the United States and the, and the European Union have had you know, very serious effects. So it has not in many ways recovered from the shock of privatization of the uh, Soviet Union, of the, uh, whereas everything was owned by the state and then privatized very quickly with the in the early 1990s with uh, certain people we now call oligarchs who were able to buy former state property for pennies on the dollar and made off very, very well. And, uh, you know, the common people not uh, not benefited much from the end of the Soviet Union. And I found uh, people of all different ideologies, not just, uh, in fact, I don't think I met any real diehard communists, but Almost everybody, in some sense, had some kind of who's old enough to remember had some kind of sense of nostalgia for what was going on before the uh, Soviet Union fell. I found it though um, amazing that of all the places I've been, there are fewer. There just is not very much fear of war. I think people just think it's not thinkable, and not anyone I talked to thought that a confrontation between the United States and Russia is on the horizon. But I still think that it is that you, uh, our media is telling us very different things, for one thing. And I think, too, the Russians we talk to, including some who's traveled in the United States extensively, have a much greater confidence in the sanity and the restraint of American leadership, saying that, uh, like one thing we often heard was that there's so much invested here. The Americans have invested so much money here in the last decade, they're not going to risk it. And so uh, I guess I took encouragement from that, but I, my own feeling is that we're in a lot more danger of, of a huge war between the United States and Russia than, than any Russian that I ever met. Did they talk to you about how the sanctions are impacting on them on a daily basis? Yes, yeah, apparently it's affecting, um, uh, don't think that there is, in the places we were, we didn't see, like, food being unavailable, but the prices of food, for example, have, have risen, and they're having to, uh, the last few years, have really been retooling their agriculture to, to be more food self-sufficient, but the, the, the price has been, been raised, and then the inflation is really accelerating. Uh, wages are staying pretty stagnant, but the the prices for most of the things that people need are are rising, and there's rising uh, levels of homelessness. Kind of the the you know the safety net that the the state provided is not much there. Things are pretty privatized, as is most healthcare and uh, the many of things, education, and many things that people take for granted around the world as being uh, responsibilities of the state are. Maybe there in theory, but are not there in practice. And uh, it's a very, very expensive place to live. And there is not much security for it. People don't feel much security for it. 
the future. And we can remember back to the Soviet times when the the people were looked after and when you think of just housing and fuel to keep warm in the, the bitter winters, that's all gone. It's gone, and there's also gone a sense of community and a sense of one person told us that the, when she was young, the uh, kind of national heroes were the uh, late operators that met their quotas, or the uh, women working at a dairy farm who produced a lot of milk, and people who cleaned the snow off the streets, but the ones that would get be getting uh, honors and being featured in the newspapers, and you know, they named streets and subway stations after manual laborers, and uh, now the heroes are the uh, millionaires and bankers and the movie stars. They, they are the same, you know, the, the, the same kind of heroes as the, we in the United States have. And people miss that. And, and there's also you know, there's not a total romance about it either because you know, we also visited the... Uh, uh, in Moscow, a very interesting institution, the Gulag Museum, which has, you know, shows the history and has exhibits of the, you know, the the, the years of the uh, the prison camps, this chain of prisons across uh, Russia and Siberia. And I just couldn't help but thinking, visiting there, because of course, as you may be aware, in the United States, our incarceration rate and our rate of people being on probation, in many ways, of looking at the numbers, incarceration in the United States exceeds the Gulag Archipelago in the 1940s, 1950s, in sheer numbers. And I couldn't help but think what would happen in the United States if someday our empire crumbles and we have are forced to take a look at ourselves and what kind of museum we would have about the uh, prison system that today people take for granted and imagine are making us safer in our homes, what the exhibits would be like and how we will look at that someday. And I think it will be looked at not a whole lot differently than the Russians now look back at uh, at their time with that. You visited the Piskaya Memorial Park. What impression did that have on you? It's a very beautiful and peaceful place. I think that if hadn't had a guide who could read the monuments and who had uh, whose uh, parents had lived through that time and could tell stories from his mother and father, it would have seemed like a park. But it's a place of massive mass graves. And you see stones just marking the year of from nineteen forty and to 1941 to 1943. In the 1942-43 winter, the temperatures got down to 40 degrees below, which is the same Celsius and Fahrenheit. During the siege of Leningrad, the Germans surrounded the city and nothing much got in or out. And the uh, people uh, of uh, 3 million people, more than a million died. And uh, the uh, Graves had to be dug with dynamite. So this is, this is very much real in people's memory. I also visited a museum of the siege, which 
was very sobering. One of the things I had was a photo exhibit, and a notice, one of the notices on the wall of the photographs in English and in Russian was translating some letters from people in the city government, Leningrad at the time, suggesting that that the uh, photographs need to be suppressed. Many of these photographs had been kept in government vaults for many years, and uh, many photographs that we don't have were destroyed on purpose, and partly because the uh, city government didn't want people later to ask how this could have happened and about their own, uh, the, the city and national government's handling of the siege is not without question, and they wanted to keep those questions from being asked. So uh, it was one of the many places where I saw a country that's trying to make sense of its past and asking some very, very hard questions of themselves. And in so other places, the, those questions are, are uh, being resisted, but at least they're being, they're being raised. Do the people talk openly about their, their feelings and their views on Putin? Because in the West we're told that he's a a mini-dictator, it's an authoritarian state, and people have very few freedoms now. Did you get that impression? Okay, you know, it's interesting because I heard that from Russians out loud and in public places. (laughs) A lot of, I think in, in terms, especially in terms of domestic and economic issues, I heard very little positive. You know, many people are, you know, the, the, uh, privatization and the, the you know, during these years the fewer people have gotten richer while the majority of people have gotten poorer and there is uh, Putin is greatly resented about that and on the international scene we did hear some dissent there too but mostly people who even the people who uh, don't like him grasp at what's been going on with uh Internationally, with the Ukraine especially, and with Crimea, it's quite popular. Syria is a bigger question. I think there's more question about about that. But I I didn't feel, you know, I felt like sometimes I could tell when I was talking to somebody if they were giving the government mind or if they, or if they weren't. I didn't, uh, I didn't know much, much fear to, to talk to, to foreigners. But we were, again, we were very low low profile. We were not being followed by the media or anything. So so the the real impression that I had, though, in both St. Petersburg and Moscow, and everything that we saw, people told us, just just as in in any capital city, you should remember, people who come to New York and Washington and, and Los Angeles don't get a good view of what people like where I live in Iowa are thinking. And people were telling us over and over again that we we need to get out and get out of out of the cities and to find out what people are really thinking. And uh, I really hope to, to take them up on that sometime soon. But in those two cities, I've never been any place where there's been such a small police presence. In the United States, especially, the police are very militarized. If you're seeing you know, pictures from Standing Rock in the in North Dakota, where the water protectors have been facing off with police, 
anyone looking at those pictures would think that they're looking at a military operation. And if you've been, just in September, I was in Washington, D.C., and outside, was outside the White House. And whenever you're there, any time of the day or night, there's people with machine guns patrolling the fences, and you see uh, sharpshooters on the snipers on the, on the rooftop of the White House. And I've seen this in you know, London and Berlin and any, all the cities in the West. But the, uh, in um, Moscow and St. Petersburg, you hardly see a police officer. The only sirens I heard were, were from ambulances. And in the, uh, the Kremlin, the, the very center of their government, there's a couple of police officers with uh, very, very small, innocuous handguns on their belts. And they're mostly helping tourists find their way around. So um, I found that very, I was not expecting that. And that's not what I'd expect from from a place that uh, is uh, some kind of ironclad dictatorship that's looking for world domination. It seemed a much gentler place than I, than I expected. Well, I'd just like to say that I talk a bit about, because you asked, you know, why we went, and just to speak more on that, there's a lot of groups that talk about the word of the term citizen diplomacy is used, and it's been applied to us, and I don't reject it completely, but I'm, I'm, the word suggests that we are somehow, even if unofficially representing our, if we're not representing our government itself, we're not representing its views or its... Uh, trying to defend it or give it a human face. And we had, you know, no intention of doing that at all. And we have no intention of uh, trying to influence the internal, especially as our group are from the United States, the United Kingdom, we're very careful about trying to, uh, even trying to, to bend the, uh, trying to, to affect what other people in other parts of the world are going to be doing. But you know, we do hope that uh, that our visit raised some understanding and made the, some of the uh, small interpersonal connections that that are things heat up between our two countries, which I fear is going to be happening, regardless of uh, some of the changes here in the United States. You know that uh, hopefully that will do some good. Thank you very much, Brian. Well, thank you, Jan. And that was Brian Terrell, who's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, speaking from his farm in Iowa, US. The 18th National Sustainable Living Festival is on again from the 4th to the 28th of February 2017. As dangerous climate change continues to threaten the things we care about, a sustainable lifestyle and restoring a safe climate is more important than ever. Featuring leading forums, artworks, talks, exhibitions and a new online festival program, it's time to ramp up the message and protect the things you care about. Event applications and full details at slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times, 
I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Dr Margie Beavis is the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and is on the line for the final look at peace and social justice issues for the year and a wrap-up of what's been happening. Margie, we can't go past the UN meeting in November. No, I think that's really the culmination of a couple of decades' work and enormously uh, encouraging in a, in a world full of bad news, to have the United Nations vote uh, with 123 nations supporting negotiations for a nuclear weapons ban starting next year. There were 38 nations against it and about 16 abstentions, but it was enormously heartening to see that this, there was such overwhelming support for this measure. And um, the next step is it'll go to, to the General Assembly, probably in December, later this month, and then negotiations will start in March and then June, July next year. The success of a whole number of groups, but the one that we've been heavily involved with and which a number of countries feel was really pivotal in this happening is ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And uh, no, we're really very encouraged by this. And Mind you, it's the start of another decade of work to then, once the negotiations start, A, to get the negotiations to be effective, and then B, to assess all the stockpiles, and then another decade or more of work to reduce those stockpiles. So again, this is just the beginning of a long journey, but we're really closer to genuine disarmament than we've been for many decades, so we're really excited about that. And I'd like to emphasise every time we talk about this proposed ban that ICANN started right here in Melbourne. Absolutely. MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, the organisation of which I'm president, set it up just about almost a decade ago in Melbourne. As I think I've said on your program before, it's like giving birth to a gorilla. It's really now got over 440 partner organisations in over 90 countries, nearly 100 countries. And what they've done, which is really clever, is instead of setting up their own standalone organisation, what they've done is they've partnered with organisations like Oxfam and Red Cross and a huge number of sort of civil society organisations that care about human outcomes and they've all worked really strongly together to get their governments to sort of start to understand that nuclear weapons are not just a political issue, that nuclear weapons are a huge humanitarian threat. I mean, if I was to ask about two existential threats, one is climate change, but the other one is nuclear weapons use. And, um, you know, ICANN starting in Melbourne was a huge source of pride. Not that I can claim any personally, because I wasn't around when it was done, but it, it, it is for our organisation. We're enormously proud of it. Well, I was very lucky to be there at that opening. It was in Parliament House here in Melbourne, and we had lunch in the one of the rooms, big room, huge big room, never been in Parliament before, and Tillman was there, and he's been there ever since. Yep, yep, Dimity Hawkins, Yes. Bill Williams, if there was a low light this year, it was that Bill Williams passed away, and we're all incredibly sad and miss him very much, but he was there, and certainly a really big part of ICANN getting up and going. And a former Prime Minister, who's now also passed away. Yes, Malcolm Fraser, yeah, another big loss. And Tim Wright's been carrying on that work for many years now. Yes, he does a tremendous job. In fact, when he was in the United Nations, he put out some fabulous memes 
that were tweeted, but also was distributed to the delegates. And um, yeah, he's been creative, imaginative, and incredibly effective in his role as the Asia Pacific coordinator for ICANN. And of course, the other side to nuclear weapons is the, the nuclear waste from yep. nuclear power stations and also from other other areas. And the push by the South Australian Labor Premier to have the world's largest nuclear waste dump in his state, it's not going quite to plan, is it? No, we're pretty encouraged in that direction, actually, as well. This is sort of turning, turning into a zombie undertaking. It's not quite dead yet, but it's getting there. We've worked really hard with a number of other organisations. The South Australian Cons Council has really led the way, Conservation Council, but many organisations, to try and point out that this is a very unwise move, given how expensive it is, that nobody in the world has achieved it, that the most likely outcome is that South Australia would lose a whole lot of money and end up with a whole lot of toxic waste as well. Um, and there are many, many reasons why that's the case. And the modelling was done by industry players who had a strong vested interest in this going ahead and it's been a, a very doubtful outcome. The, the Royal Commission was set up with very pro-nuclear people and the expert panel, three out of five. Anyway, it's a whole complex thing. But the good news is that, firstly, um, the citizens' jury, having been set up with uh, 350 South Australians, randomly selected, listened to all the evidence and then came out with two-thirds of them saying under no circumstances whatsoever should South Australia go ahead with this proposal. And then that was shortly followed by the South Australian Liberal Party coming out and saying that South Australia can do so much better than be the world's nuclear waste dump. And that's entirely true and that they were very happy to make this an election issue and they did not support it. I think they could see that the writing was on the wall, that even the main reason for doing it was money and the, and the reasoning, the, the modelling that was given was so poor that even the reason to do it was fanciful. And then after the South Australian Liberals came out against it, the South Australian Business South Australia came out against it and also Jay Weddell's own union has come out against it. So for this to go ahead, he really needed to have community consensus and they're so far away from community consensus that I think it'll never happen. He wants to have now a referendum. Remains to be seen whether the referendum gets up. The South Australian Parliament Upper House Committee is going to report in the new year and I suspect that will come down in party lines that the Labor Party will be for it and the Liberals and the Greens against it. I suspect Family First will be for it but I don't want to speak for them. But certainly the report, I guess once the Liberals and the Business South Australia came out against it on top of the Citizens Jury, I think this is a proposal that's highly unlikely to go ahead. It's amazing though that it's a Labor government pushing this, isn't it? It's astonishing. It's really astonishing, given given that there's sort of genuine worker harms that are going to come out of this. I mean, radiation exposures are going to happen with handling this waste, but also the increased risk of likelihood of accidents and deliberate harm, and then the fact that the fact what's really what the South Australians say is this is going to make the South Australian state bank financial disaster look small. I mean, this is an area where the U.S., Germany. France have lost billions and billions and billions of dollars and how Australia thinks it's going to make it into a cash cow, I have no idea. And of course the traditional owners were at the forefront of opposing this? The traditional owners were an enormous source of inspiration and strength. I mean, one of the reasons the citizens' jury came out so strongly against it was that the traditional owners from the areas this dump is likely to be came out and said, don't even think about it, this is our land, you're not going to destroy our land, you're not going to destroy our kids' land, our grandchildren's land, don't do it. And they were extremely strong and really a force to be reckoned with. And I, I think they, the people of South Australia, owe them a, a vote of thanks, really.
This is not the only dump that they're proposing, is it? No, there's a federal waste dump, which is a very poorly planned facility that's being um, foisted on the people in Flinders Ranges, which is an iconic tourist destination, and that still is a very contested space, and we're going to work hard to try and get a better process and a much better undertaking, get them to go back to the drawing board with that one. You just wonder the, the mentality of people when you've got a, a popular tourist place and oh, we'll put a nuclear dump there, it'll be okay. Well, not only that, the locals say that it's in, in a floodplain in a very seismically active area and that there's a very high, very salty water table. I mean, you sort of couldn't pick a worse place geologically if what the locals say is true. And also the dump that they're... The, 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 for the low-level waste, they're doing the right thing with world's best practice, but for the intermediate-level waste, which is much more dangerous, it's basically just a, a shed. It's just storage. It's not proper disposal at all. So it's a very slapdash proposal. A few hundred kilometres further up the road, you have Alice Springs, and then just out of Alice Springs, you have Pine Gap, and quite a number of people went up there in September, October to have a go at... Australia's involvement in the nuclear issues. And of course, not only nuclear issues, but war games. And drone, the, the, the drone strikes, there's sort of extrajudicial killings happening in a number of countries we're not even at war at. And Australia's Pine Gap is being used to pick up the telephone signals and to help with the targeting of these drones that are killing people in, in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Sudan that we're complicit with what we do with in Pine Gap that, yes, as you said, is used for nuclear targeting, but it's also used for many other intelligence gathering exercises. And really, Australia needs to recognise that certainly in, in the case of any nuclear war or any a case of any sort of major war, Pine Gap would certainly be a target because it is so valuable to the Americans. And the conference that was held up there was organised by the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, who did a tremendous job and who are campaigning quite hard that Australia reevaluates its foreign policy because at the moment we are so heavily enmeshed with the United States. We have a number of intelligence gathering facilities. We have training for their air force. We have their troops coming through, the Marines coming through Darwin. And in fact, there's now, in the middle of this year, there was plans to double the number of troops that are coming through Darwin that are rotating through. So I think Australia's foreign policy is extremely tied to, or defence personnel certainly, are extremely tied to the American chain of command and the American adventurism. And I think particularly since the election of Donald Trump, we need to really rethink our foreign policy because clearly we need to do have a foreign policy that is in Australia's best interests, not a foreign policy that's driven by US interests. And of course, it's not just the people on the left who are calling for an independent foreign policy, is it? No. I think there's certainly people across the board who, who believe that being just subservient to what the U.S. policies are is, is, a, is a grave mistake. We, ha- we have actually, it's, it's encouraging um, with Donald Trump contacting Taiwan and, and stirring up that particular hornet's nest. Australia has clearly differentiated itself and said it's not going to enter into raising the stakes over the issue of Taiwan. So it's interesting to see a little bit of independence creeping in and I'm hoping that that increases. Not so good, though, with Melbourne University being independent. Now they're facilitating Lockheed Martin. Yes, this is astounding um, for a university that prides itself on its reputation and that does enormous fundraising amongst its alumni. For it to be lining up with Lockheed Martin, the biggest weapons manufacturer in the world, who's very closely aligned with nuclear weapons manufacturer and nuclear weapons systems manufacturer, 
And for Melbourne University to be getting, I think it's $14 million for a lab is a real sellout and um, we're going to be campaigning quite hard on this in the coming year because I think this is the, the, the really this is a hugely damaging thing for the university because these are not good people to be doing business with at all. As the year ends, Margie, have you put your hand up as for president in 2017? I have, <laughs> I have. <laughs> so yes, I've, I'm looking forward to lots of things. There's so much to work on. It'll be a, a busy year, I think, ahead. Okay, well, thanks very much for being part of the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having us on. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. And that's Dr. Margie Beavis, excuse me, who's the present president of MAPW, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and the one for 2017 as well. And it's instructive to have a look at their webpage, the myriad of areas that they're involved with and educating the general public to the issues of peace in our society, in the the world at large. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. During 2016, we had lots of activities to celebrate our 40th birthday including the publication of a a wonderful book. And on the program, I interviewed a number of people who have played prominent parts in the running of the station over those years. And one was the former station manager, Bruce Francis, who was here during the late 80s to the mid-90s. And I asked Bruce first how he first got to come as part of 3CR. My first introduction to 3CR was when I came in to volunteer. My partner and I, uh, we decided that we wanted to come in and do a program. So we came and did the training, which absolutely terrified me. And as soon as someone shoved a microphone in my front of my face, I completely clammed up. We hoped to do a trade union program, rank and file program and a a lesbian gay program and that's what we did the alan g show uh which was at 10 30 to midnight on wednesday nights uh picket line which was a program which went to air on the weekend the time slot i don't remember both of which were immense fun and you know had their own challenges but um and, and quite different the alan g show we had some guests we did lots of chatter had lots of fun, very laid back, engaged lots of people, did a bit of talk back, talked about you know topical issues, sort of was a bit thrown together at the time, you know, we all prepared something and brought it together and stuff. So that was really nice and a really lovely way to sort of meet people and stay in touch with what was actually happening in the community. And the challenges? Challenges are always doing a weekly program, really. <laughs> Finding the time and doing it justice. The other challenges for me were around just quite knowing who your audience were 
And every so often we would get these letters, because it was letters in those days, from someone who was living out in some suburb or we'd get a phone call from someone out in some suburb who was sort of listening to us on their headphones in bed at night so no one would know. The whole sort of sense that you were actually communicating to someone who wasn't out, who didn't feel safe to be out, clearly, you know, afraid about coming out, but also just so thankful that there was voices out there that they could listen to, which in a sense were saying to them that they were okay. And was CO a groundbreaker in that sense with an LNG show? Clearly, for actually out broadcasters, uh, just, you know, a whole show, hour and a half dedicated to lesbian gay issues, clearly was something really special. And in those times, we used to do specials as well. I mean, the station was fantastic in terms of, you know, supporting us as a group of broadcasters to do annual Stonewall Day broadcasts, Stonewall Day being a very significant day for gay liberation. We did those for a number of years where we'd take over the whole of the station And, you know, you would have expected in those days that station management might have turned around and said, well, sorry, we're going to upset some of the listeners in other time slots, so please don't. But that was not the case. So we were able to broadcast uh, and people really sort of got behind it and really sort of supported what we were doing. What about the rank and file trade union show? Was that sort of a groundbreaker as well? Because we had a lot of union programs on at that time. It was, I mean, CR's had a history of fairly progressive trade unions being involved. So it wasn't complete surprise, but it was very much aimed at talking to rank and files and not necessarily talking to leadership. And we did some really interesting stuff, you know, from around the country. So, you know, sort of road disputes. We did issues around asbestos and asbestos and Indigenous communities. We did stuff around gender and trade unionism. While we covered disputes, we also covered issues and talked to a really interesting group of people around that. And often we would be down on the picket line talking to people on the picket line and getting their views and you know talking about what those sort of actual disputes were. But it was usually a single theme for half an hour, whether it was a particular dispute, whether it was a particular issue, so done in depth. It was great. We had a team of about 10 or about ten of us and it was usually two or three people who presented each week. So you got a break and you sort of, you know, you're able to sort of come back and do something that was a bit in depth and you're able, because there was many of us, to pursue your own particular interests and the, the sort of things that you were interested in as a trade unionist. Again, I thought it was a really interesting radio and, and really true to the CR sort of cause of actually giving the little people a voice. Even when it was disputes that, you know, there were quite progressive unions involved in, it was still taking a slightly different angle and different approach to it. I think we upset a few right-wing unions, but <laughs> but apart from that, I think it was pretty all right, really. Big step from being a programmer to a manager. Had you had experience as a manager in other fields? Yes, I had um, worked as sort of a coordinator of a number of small organisations headed up the regional housing council down in Gippsland. You know, I'd been the coordinator of a youth refuge, worked for corporate housing. It was sort of a bit of a surprise to me because a few months earlier I'd applied for a job as the volunteer coordinator and I hadn't got an interview. And then I got an interview and actually got appointed as the manager. I really was a bit scared about it, really. (laughs) 
it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then <laughs> once I got the job, I thought, oh, shit, what have I done? But CR was an organisation I really believed in. The impact it was actually having and the role it could play. I thought being young and sort of a bit sillier than even I am now, I'd throw my hat in the ring. A big crossover period at that time, though, wasn't it, between when the managers changed, that the new manager got a lot from the one who was leaving? Yeah, yeah, I was I was really lucky because Jeff Swanton, who had been here before me, had been here for about six and a half years. I think there was a six-week handover period, which was pretty good, really, because it was in the lead-up to Radiothon, which, you know, is do or die for the station, really, in terms of its income. I was walked through the whole sort of process and the systems that were in place. I was so impressed. It's hard to imagine from an outside point of view just what goes into fundraising when you're a little community station because every broadcaster's involved. So you've got 400-odd people involved. You've got to coordinate that. You've got to you know, encourage people. You've got to give people the resources to be able to do it. You've got to have the systems in place to find the money and get the money and you know, get the money in and bank the money and everything else. Everyone just gets one go, so they have to make it really work on that, that day. So everyone has to be really fired up. So it's, it's a really important. And, and at that stage, it was a six-week preparation, all mapped out, two-week sort of period of time. And then a very big collapse at the end of it, really, because you were exhausted. (laughs) I'm forever grateful for the handover that Jeff gave me. I think I would have struggled otherwise. What about things that you were hoping that you could bring into the station? New programmers, new ideas? Yeah, it was sort of a really interesting time for the station because I think politics was in the middle of changing. It was the late 80s. A lot of the established sort of left was sort of starting to fracture and there were movements rather than parties. So there was this whole different sort of outlook of what was progressive. For me, broadening the base of what people thought of as progressive and what who should be given a voice and who needed to be given a voice was one of the things that I was really interested in. So bringing in, you know, new ethnic communities that were more recently arrived than the established communities that were here, boosting lesbian gay broadcasting, boosting women's broadcasting, looking at um, environmental broadcasting, were all sort of issues that we really wanted to explore. Was that the time when we had an Aboriginal employee? Yes, when I started work we did have an Aboriginal paid employee. And certainly we did increase our Aboriginal broadcasting at that time. And again, that was really important. And there was a whole emphasis on getting out and about in the community. I mean, we had we had big sort of special broadcasts on a regular basis, you know, Invasion Day and, you know, Stonewall Day, International Women's Day. When the nurses' dispute happened, you know, we had a program which ran every morning for the eight weeks, I think it was, of the dispute, which just broadcast around the nurses and, you know, gave a voice to the union, but also, really importantly, gave a voice to a whole lot of nurses and uh, became a focal point for real information about what was actually happening. So there's a lot of emphasis on that and that sort of really sort of that vibrancy that comes from engaging the community. You know, we had our first 
open days where we invited our listeners into the station. You know, we had stalls everywhere. We had the street blocked off. We had bands playing. A much bigger emphasis on live music, which was really exciting. Programs which had live bands in every week. Programs which, you know, looked at that sort of what was happening around and talked to people around that. All those things were around not trying to sort of control what was going on, but really reflect the vibrancy of what was happening in progressively, in a political sense, in a social sense, and in an artistic sense. And the ethnic challenges at that time was Timor during that time? Timor and the station was, you know, really supportive of the Timorese struggle. There were other liberation struggles that the station um, was really supportive of in um, Central and South America. The Palestinians all programs that and as manager it was you know my responsibility but also my pleasure to actually engage the person responsible for engaging with all the non-english language programs it was the passion of people from their communities to be able to talk to their communities about what was happening to them which were in many cases were you know, quite life-threatening obviously situations real struggles for justice and independence was just a privilege to watch really um, and the way people did connect to those communities and kept those communities engaged and active in those struggles. And of course even though those ethnic programs were broadcast in their own language they then sort of communicated with the other programmers and they, they were interviewed and the wider community knew more about the struggles in that way. Indeed and you know Many of the broadcasters spoke extremely good English, uh, uh, were fabulous interview talent. They knew exactly what was going on. They were able to give a perspective, which really meant that CR was offering a perspective on struggles that other stations just couldn't match, you know, because they didn't have the sort of the talent and the knowledge. And it was part of the DNA of the organisation. And that's part of a, a longer interview I conducted with the former manager of 3CR, Bruce Francis, earlier this year, helping to celebrate our 40th birthday. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. For those of you who feel that Christmas gift-giving is overrated, and in addition the time required to shop around, usually for people who don't really need anything else in their lives, I have the perfect solution. A donation to Olive Kids, an Australian-registered foundation assisting Palestinian children not only in Palestine, but also in refugee camps in neighbouring countries. I'm joined on the line by two members of Olive Kids, Mohammed and Noah. Begin by asking you both when you last visited Palestine. Me personally, I was there last in 2013 on a, a two-week volunteering program in the West Bank. The situation for children in Palestine is pretty bleak, and particularly in Gaza. 
Muhammad and I were actually, I think the last time I was there was with him as well. Yeah, we were both on a leadership volunteer program there together in 2013. Do you still have family there? I do. Um, I've got an aunt there and a large sort of extended family there as well, mainly in the West Bank. I guess same for me. I No immediate family. I've got um, my mum's auntie is kind of the closest relative to us that's there, but otherwise there are lots of extended family members spread across the West Bank. Well, let's look at the statistics of what it's like for a Palestinian child living in the West Bank and also in Gaza. In general, the situation in Gaza is really bleak. You know, three Israeli offensives in recent years have left a lot of infrastructure damage and a lot of lives shattered. Many people there struggle to provide for their families and youth unemployment is also really high and, and, you know, many feel hopeless. And, yeah, this, of course, makes it a very difficult place for a child to grow up. And, of course, it's very difficult for people to get into Gaza to actually help the people there to rebuild their lives after bombardments every couple of years. Yeah, 100%. I mean, neither of us have ever been to Gaza and I don't foresee that it would be an easy trek to get there. We do have surgeons that we send over there on medical missions through Olive Kids once a year. However, in you know recent times, we've had to often divert to the West Bank or when we've had our own volunteers go over, it's always been to the West Bank. It's, it's very difficult to get in and out of Gaza, not only for humans, but you know, also for financial aid, for medical aid, even clothing from our clothes drives that we run. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. I think it's once you're in there, it's okay. And, you know, we, in our recent dinner, did a mission to raise money for a new wing of an orphanage, for the El Amal orphan, orphanage. And I guess that will probably be easier given that it's going to be facilitated by gardens on the ground but to get one of our volunteers there is not an easy feat. What was the situation for the the children in the West Bank the last time you were there in 2013? I think the situation can vary hugely depending on the socioeconomic circumstances for each family but I think I would say that the majority of children are significantly underdeveloped, they don't have the opportunities, the basic human rights opportunities that we have here, such as wearing clean clothes, going to school, being fed properly, living in a, you know, a house, in a bed. You know, often you would find even we went to refugee camps bordering on Jerusalem or against the wall. Yeah, called Ada Refugee Camp. It's terribly sad. This the the children themselves are in great spirits, you know, they're running around, laughing, having a great time, playing with each other, but you, you obviously can tell they're not wearing clean clothes. They are sleeping with maybe 10 members of a family in one room. They can be sleeping on the ground. A lot of them don't have access to school. They might go through the United Nations schooling, but even then the schools are sometimes subject to violence because this specific orphanage is bordering against the separation wall, they often find that they have gun retaliation in there. So I would say that it's it's not a normal circumstance for a child to grow up in. And yeah, yeah it, I mean, we saw this in West Bank, so I can only imagine how difficult the circumstances would be in Gaza. West Bank is considered worlds above Gaza in terms of being in line with the Western world, but even then, you don't see sites like we've seen. 
And of course, there's a good reason why the children haven't got clean clothes, isn't there? Because their water's stolen. Yeah, of course. You know, the water's stolen. Gaza and Palestine have some of the highest unemployment rates, got families and and parents and, and fathers that are suffering from the emotional side effects of not having jobs and, you know, therefore the whole family suffers. Unfortunately, the children sometimes can be under, whether it be emotional torment, mental, physical, from the families. There's a, a huge range of issues that the children have to face as a consequence of the occupation that they're living under. Who were those in the early 2000s who decided that they needed to help to alleviate the situation for the children? There were some passionate Australian Palestinian volunteers that in the post-September 11 political landscape found it difficult to contribute to the Palestinian cause. And so these people formed Olive Kids as a way to make, you know, organised contribution uh, with a focus on, with a dedication to Palestinian children. I think the reason why children were chosen is because they're the most vulnerable. Olive Kids was formed to help improve the lives of Palestinian children. Why did they choose the name Olive Kids? Olive Kids basically represents the focus on children, but it also ties in uh, the olive branch, which is a national symbol of Palestine. The, the, the official name for the organisation is Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children. But Olive Kids, I think, represents very well what the organisation's about. When you think about the olive branch and the olive tree, think about like the seeds of growth um, and that potential. And I and I think same with you know the children and the kids aspect. They are the future of Palestine, and they're the ones that are hopefully one day going to you know lead this exit of the occupation. So I think you know the significance of Olive Kids as a name. It just symbolises the future and hopefully the positive impact that we're, we're able to make to the children and to the Palestinians' lives. How difficult was it to follow up those ideals and actually get them into actually practising things for that are going to benefit the children? What hoops did you have well, to go through? At first, obviously, it was quite difficult. There's a number of layers that, you know, make setting up a charity a little bit of you know a tedious task firstly we are talking about Palestine which is not necessarily a recognized state by all countries in the world you know we're, we're sending money overseas which in itself is a difficult feat we're taking donations from people in Australia and guaranteeing that they will get to Palestine without any administrative costs so I think those things in themselves were quite challenging but then above that too I mean the few people that founded Olive Kids to begin with, you know, wanted to make sure that there was a lot of integrity involved in what they were raising money for. And, you know, there's always planning behind what we do. There's always a goal in place. We never raise money just for the sake of raising money without knowing the end game, because it's very important for us. I mean, now especially, we are recognised by the Australian government as a tax-deductible charity, and it's really important for us that every dollar that we take from someone to send overseas with an intention that that stays true and arrives to the person that was intended for. Well, let's look at the the groups that have benefited from Olive Kids over the years. And you mentioned an orphanage a moment ago. Could you expand? Is there more than one orphanage or is, are there a couple? 
There are, look, there are a few orphanages in Gaza, but our, one of our main programs is our orphan sponsorship program, which is conducted in partnership with Al Amal Institute for Orphans in Gaza. And is the main reason that there are orphanages that the children have lost their parents due to Israeli aggression? Well, yeah, absolutely. Like, sadly, uh, Al Amal Institute has needed to expand quite considerably in, in recent years, which is really heartbreaking for us. But, you know, we find the least we can do is support them through this. As Noor mentioned, one of our projects at the moment is to help fund an additional floor at Al Amal Institute in Gaza. The additional floor has an expected cost of approximately 200,000 US dollars, and we've raised over 150 so far. But yeah, I would say that definitely the aggression has resulted in many children having had to go into this orphanage. Unfortunately, a lot of in Due to the situation in Gaza, a lot of their families aren't able to support their own families as well as these children, and they find themselves in orphanages. It's also important to note, too, that the definition, the Islamic definition of an orphan is, you know, not just both parents deceased, but it can be the father is deceased and the mother is not. So it's sad for us, too, that we, we do have a number of orphans who, I guess, by the Western world wouldn't be considered orphans, but with only a mother in the political climate, in the cultural climate, the mothers aren't able to support their families. We find that either the father is supporting the family and as soon as the father isn't around or, you know, the integral backbone of the family is missing, um, unfortunately these children are, you know, left in the hands of the orphanage even if their families are, you know, still existing. And what sort of services are available to the children in that orphanage? Or in other so, orphanages? The orphanage provides all the day-to-day -day services that these kids need, so whether that's you know, food and shelter as well as education, health care, any sort of support that they need through growing up, uh, and then additional support as they turn 18 and you know, start their lives into adulthood. Yeah, so I think um, it's important to note too that the money that we fund with our orphan sponsorship program, which um, Mohammed is actually the director of the orphan sponsorship program, we do have a portion of that money that gets left in a trust for the orphans for when they do become of age. So we make sure that, you know, we just we don't just facilitate their lives throughout the orphanage and then as soon as they enter adulthood they're free on their own. We make sure that it's a sustainable continued commitment that gets them into their adult lives and facilitates their growth you know, as human beings moving into the real world. Your webpage mentions the education. Is this the education that they receive in the orphanage or do you do further work in the educational field? Further work that we do. In addition to the orphan sponsorship program, we've organised specialists and experts from Australia to provide remote trainings and support uh, wherever possible. Recently, we've done a nutrition project in Gaza where we've carried out educational sessions uh, on nutrition. We've also, the, the medical missions that Noor suggested, we have a yearly medical mission where Australian surgeons head over to Palestine to conduct medical training as well as conduct surgeries in conjunction with health providers in Palestine. Are there any hurdles to volunteers going into do that volunteer work? I'm thinking of the surgeons and the maybe teachers. If you've ever been into Palestine, crossing the border is a hurdle in itself, whether you intend to be a tourist 
you'd like to go see some family or you want to volunteer. So, yes, of course, there are always obstacles. But I think for us it's, you know, about having a really strong network with people on the ground as well as with the United Nations, having a really clear set of processes that we follow, making sure that our volunteers are really well looked after, really well briefed. So I wouldn't say that we've necessarily had many issues as yet getting them in. Sometimes we have to divert our plans. Maybe people that were intending intended for Gaza um, end up in the West Bank. But um, I think we really do that thorough due diligence from the ground here to make sure that you know the effort, the energy, and the funding that goes into sending someone overseas really pays off. And no one's turning around and coming back without having achieved something for the organisation and for the children. Can you talk a little bit more about your both times there as volunteers? Both Mohammed and I went overseas to Palestine with a program known as KTH, which stands for Know Thy Heritage. Know Thy Heritage is run by an organisation in America based in Washington called HCEF. And they basically, through this KTH program, facilitate leadership programs for Palestinian youth between the age, I believe, of 18 to 30. And over a two-week period, you are taken around Palestine, not only to see, you know, the, I guess, the touristic sites that you would have heard of, you know, throughout your life from your parents and your grandparents, but also to meet really influential leaders, to get in touch with, you know, businesses that are thriving. You know, we went to the um, Bank of Palestine, which, you know, is an amazing, um, amazingly successful bank run, you know, through the West Bank. And then I guess as well, because it's a global program, you get to meet with like-minded diaspora as well. You get to make form these really strong connections around the world and that's where you know the impact really lies you can you know brainstorm together share different ideas across the world and you know really I guess create this network yeah great programs sort of designed to create connections between you know youth in in the diaspora around the world with their homeland a lot of the friends that we met on this program were, you know, second, third or fourth generation uh, in, in a new um, country and visiting Palestine for the first time. So it's a really great program that facilitates connection with Palestine and a lot of the volunteers from Australia that have gone on this program have actually come and volunteered at Olive Kids and really sort of gotten involved with helping out the Palestinian cause after going on this program. Yeah, so it's the, one, of, one of the requirements of the program is that you give back to Palestine and to the community when you return from the program. And Olive Kids is, you know, the link that got us there in the first place because through Amin, one of the um, founders of Olive Kids, we were able to link up with this um, organisation. And then from there, it's been really beneficial. I think there's probably been about four years of delegates now that have gone over and when they return... They're all, you know, really excited and inspired to help their homeland and they, and mostly do it through Olive Kids, really use that energy and excitement to, you know, help Olive Kids grow and, and essentially help the Palestinian children. If I look back, you know, maybe five years ago to where Olive Kids was and where we are now, I think that we are a nationally recognised charity 
a really well reputable charity. We have young professionals. It's mostly now run by young professionals, and you know we are spread across several cities across Australia. You know, in really great jobs and with really great networks where we can build our networks, but also let our networks know about you know Palestine, about the situation. I think one of the most important things for us in Australia is to make sure that people are aware of what the situation is and getting away from, you know, how the media portrays it. But, you know, telling those real life true stories and experiences is, you know, what touches people and essentially what encourages them to donate and support Olive Kids and basically the whole reason why Olive Kids is really thriving at the moment. Can you talk a little bit more about the medical professionals who go over there and the work that they do? Our medical missions program is funded by Olive Kids, but essentially what happens is medical specialists from here in Australia travel over to Palestine mainly to to conduct medical training for doctors and surgeons over there, but also to sometimes conduct surgeries over there for special cases. And so essentially, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the program. To be honest, so I would say that the relationship between the medical professionals and Olive Kids is, you know, a very historical relationship that was um, created with our founders. So because, you know, it's been a continued annual mission, it's not something necessarily that the younger youth who are involved in Olive Kids, you know, are across per se. We don't know the details. We get told after the fact of the report and, you know, the ways in which that they were able to contribute. But I guess because there are so many different channels that we need to you know, put our energy into, often we see a mean is running the medical missions. And all this costs money, even though you've got volunteers giving their time and their expertise. How do you fundraise? We have several avenues that we fundraise through. Um, the primary one, I would say, is the annual dinner that we, we host. It's usually around April, May and has for the last, I believe, three or four years been run at Peninsula in the Docklands, which if you're familiar with, that's where they run the Grand Prix and the Fashion Festival. It's a, a huge venue. We have you know, up to 400 people that attend every year. And, you know, through not only their attendance, but also their generosity, you know, on the night through auctions, raffles, even the orphanage um, campaign that we spoke of earlier in the interview, we just ran it as a campaign where we raised money and astounding to see. We, I think we had over $100,000 in donations within a five-minute period. So the dinner is definitely up there in you know, one of the biggest ways that we are able to raise money. But then there is also the orphan sponsorship program and that's you know, a $50 donation or, I guess, contribution towards your orphan. And we have over 150 orphans, I believe, at the moment. Yeah, 216 children at the moment are being sponsored by about 180 people here in Australia. So apart from that, we receive a lot of a regular stream of donations just sort of via our website for our work. More recently, we've registered on a fundraising supporter page called Everyday Hero, which allows you know anybody to register a, a page on Everyday Hero to support Olive Kids as a cause and collect donations from their friends and it's particularly good when uh, recently when there was the run for Palestine some generous volunteers were able to create supporter pages and we actually managed to raise 
over thirty thousand dollars just from people collecting okay. donations for their run their, their participation in the run for Palestine. Throughout the year as well, we have different initiatives. So we might, you know, host a, a Palestinian movie or participate in the film festival. You know, there's there's always something happening to raise the funds that contribute to the yearly campaign. And if people would like to donate? Absolutely. The first place to check is probably olivekids.org.au. That has a lot of information about our programs and it also has a, a way to donate on there as well through bank transfer or online. Can I ask you both finally how being involved in an organisation like this, supporting children and their families so far away from where you're living, how it, how it impacts on you? For me, it has, you know, the most wonderful and positive impact. I think when people, people, you know, when Palestine comes to mind, a lot of people, you know, consider the, the political climate but tend to dehumanise what is happening on the ground. So I think that, first and foremost, Olive Kids is a way to really bring that conversation about Palestine into people's households and remind them that, you know, there are children being affected and then... You know, that being a really great way to have conversation starters with your friends, with your networks um, in the office um, and elsewhere. And I think from there, contributing to Olive Kids, you know, I'm not going to say it's not hard work. It's very hard work, but it's extremely rewarding. You know, we meet at least once a month, if not, you know, during the period of our dinners, we're meeting every day for two, three month periods to organise these events. We don't charge administrative fees because we don't get paid for the work that we do. Often we're uh, working throughout the night on, you know, websites, seeding plans, what have you. There's a million and one different things that go into it behind the scenes. But I think that, you know, when you receive these really beautiful videos from the orphanage on how the children are enjoying the soccer balls that you sent over or the new playground that you've installed for them or I know that one of our um, volunteers had an experience she went to a refugee camp and saw one of the girls wearing an outfit of hers that she had sent from here. So I think it's rewarding and nothing compares to the feeling that you get when you know that you are helping someone that is in need and that would be helpless otherwise. Mohammed? Olive Kids, is, it's been great for me. I've been involved since I went on Know Thy, know Thy Heritage in 2013 and I really enjoyed being able to contribute to a cause that I feel so passionately about. And yeah, as, as Nora said, it, it allows us to do something for Palestine, utilizing our skills collectively, and at the same time, sort of allow us to create awareness about the Palestinian situation. You know, really affect some children's lives in Palestine in a meaningful way. And a lot, a lot of us really feel over here in Australia that it's the absolute least that we can do to help improve the lives of Palestinian children. And that was Mohammed and Noah, part of Olive Kids, a great organisation. So if you've got money to spare, instead of maybe wasting it on presents for people who really can do without another present, why not go onto the webpage olivekids.org.au. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR. 
bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Now we look back on what can only be described as the carnage wrought by US plans to reshape the Middle East. 15 years of devastation in Afghanistan, Libya all but destroyed and now in turmoil, Iraq struggling, but Syria, they found, was no easy task, and five years on, unconquered. Dr Tim Anderson, academic and member of Hands Off Syria Australia, is with me once again for an assessment of the present and the future for the people of Syria and the wider Middle East. Tim, I'd like you to focus on what is now being given credence, but what you have been talking about for years, and that's the widespread false news in regards to the war in Syria. It's both the mainstream media, which I believe you steer clear of, and also social media. Can you give some of the most blatant examples of what people are being and have been fed as truth, and how this is any different to the usual war propaganda? Let me clarify it first. I do read the corporate media. I don't really like to call them mainstream because it suggests that they're some, coming from something other than an elite. I read it about 5 to 10% of the time, something like that. I, I look at like a healthy diet. You know, you've got to cut down your junk food to a minimum, but some people want to read this to see what they say other people are thinking. I think you can do a little bit of it without being overwhelmed by it. So obviously I do see the distortions and sometimes the admissions and so on of what's going on. If you're talking about in relation to the Syrian war, the main lie that's been repeated there is that there is a civil war in Syria and that there are somehow moderate people involved as opposed to the extremists. In reality, there's no difference between them. There are squabbles between some of these groups, but every single armed group trying to overthrow the Syrian government or to break up Syria as a nation are armed and funded by the US and its allies. That's a very simple truth. You can document it with evidence from admissions alone from the United States over the last six years or so. So that's the main distortion. And it's quite surprising really to me still that even though all of these admissions are made like U.S. Vice President and the head of the army have said all of our allies are funding and arming all of these groups, you know, all of the Al-Qaeda groups and all of the associated ones, whether they're moderate or extremist, according to the Western media. Even though they've admitted that, the line remains the same. There is some sort of division between the extremists and the moderates and that the U.S. is somehow fighting the terrorists that they are arming and funding directly or indirectly through Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, Israel and the others. What about the White Helmets? Well, the White Helmets are an auxiliary of the Al-Qaeda groups, particularly of what used to be called Jabhat al-Nusra, now Jaish Fatah al-Sham. It's really just another name for Al-Qaeda in the western part of Syria. ISIS is another name for Al-Qaeda in the eastern part of Syria. So the White Helmets are basically a media operation purporting to be medical rescue people for Al-Qaeda in the western part of Syria. Uh, you notice they've pretty much disappeared as the the pocket 
controlled by al-Qaeda in East Aleppo has been disappearing. The reports from the White Helmets actually in Aleppo are disappearing because that pocket is disappearing and the al-Qaeda groups and the White Helmets are themselves getting out or being captured or being reduced to a very, a very, very tiny pocket. Indeed, the, the Russians are predicting now that the complete liberation of, of Aleppo is going to happen within about 48 hours. You just imagine how many children they could have pulled out of the rubble, or was it the same child virtually every time? Well, they did that quite a lot. There's one girl, we've got pictures of them rescuing three times in the same day, or three different people carrying her, and then three times in separate months, this one girl. So they've really been doing these stunts with selfies, basically, and they're very recognisable to people in the know that the Al-Qaeda groups, the Salafists, have this big beard without a moustache, and We've got photos of them carrying guns and carrying children and swapping backwards and forwards between their white helmet uniform and their al-Qaeda fighter uniform. So it's been a very heavily funded PR operation, basically. Between the British and the US government, they've put over $100 million into the white helmets, which they at first claimed was independent and not armed and so on and so on. They've never operated in any areas other than those controlled by the al-Qaeda groups in western Syria. So there's no number that any Syrian can call up to get help from them. They're only operating with those groups. So that's one of the scams that's really... Of course, they get replicated, they get amplified um, in the Western media because their reports come out, and a lot of people believe it. A lot of people see someone being dug out from the rubble. You might have seen that there was a video the other day, more or less pre-edit video, which showed them digging this guy out of the rubble, and then it showed them holding still for a minute for the operation and then the guy was moaning and groaning and so on and then they all posed for selfies after it. So it was entirely staged. I suspect a large amount of those operations where they're pulling people from the rubble are also staged. This is not to discount that there were people killed in East Aleppo with al-Qaeda, including possibly some of their families. That could well have happened, but clearly the the whole white helmet operation has been a, a PR stunt designed to delegitimise the Syrian army from taking back its territory from al-Qaeda groups. And the Syrian Observatory on Human Rights? It's been well known for a long time that that's one man based in England on the phone to his mates in Syria and all over the place and giving a whole range of numbers which are simply plucked out of the air, literally plucked out of the air. You know, 35 children were killed today in a barrel bomb in so-and-so. And there's no other evidence apart from this man or perhaps some unnamed activist that he quotes, that becomes journalism in, in the Western media because it suits the war propaganda line. It's extraordinary the level to which Western journalism has dropped during this war. Maybe it does it under other wars in the past, but there's no need to look for any other sorts of sources. So uh, there's several of these sources, but the Syrian Observatory is, is one of the main ones. What about the blogs? I'm talking about the girl, the seven-year-old living in Aleppo. Ah, Bana of Aleppo, yeah. a, a recent one, yeah. I mean, there's a woman called Barbara McKenzie, who, if you look her up, her article recently exposed it completely. Another one, like the Aleppo Media Centre, like the revolutionary forces of Syria, they're basically front-set-up, typically run by Western people, Europeans or North Americans, not just funded by them, but scripted by them, written by them like the Syria campaign set up by some Wall Street types, including an Australian or two, by the way. But Bana of Aleppo probably run from Gaziantep in south 
Turkey where a lot of the staging posts for the al-Qaeda groups in western Syria where they use. So this is a, an actual little girl, you know, that she, the girl exists, um, she's probably not in Aleppo, but everything is written is written by someone else and not written by a Syrian, written by someone with very good English. The ones talking about bring on World War Three rather than, you know, barrel bomb us to death here in Aleppo, those sorts of things. The little girl, when you hear her talk, she hardly got any English anyway. She can string together a couple of words, basically. So it's clearly written by someone else. It's quite likely the girl's not in Aleppo at all. It's one of a, a series of media scams, but once again, surprisingly, many, many Western journalists and, and bloggers and so on are, are sucked in by this because it suits their, their war narrative. So is this war propaganda, of course, as per usual? It is war propaganda, and war propaganda is a crime. As per uh, usual, though, or is it it's different this time? It's quite effective in the sense that they suck a lot of people in. It's an, been an important part of the war itself. It is the war itself. It's a war crime under the Geneva Conventions. People were executed for it during the Nuremberg trials at the extreme end of it. And the extreme end of it means fabricating evidence to promote war, for example, not just bias in reporting, but being actively involved in the fabrication of evidence to promote war. There's been um, a, a famous case that a man called Robert Stewart in Britain has pursued for quite a while against the BBC for doing just this. That is to say, they fabricated a chemical weapons the idea of a chemical weapons attack, they fabricated video, they had actors trained. He's exposed it over the last three years. It, it occurred in the wake of a large chemical weapons incident east of Damascus where there was discussion at the time of, of Western attacks on Syria, missile attacks on Syria. And uh, so there's been a, a series of these sorts of incidents. So that they really roll on and the white helmets and banner of Aleppo and if you go back to 2011, Syrian Danny in Homs, who was fabricating sound effects to talk about how many people, were, how many civilians were being killed in Homs when the Al Qaeda groups were indeed occupying Homs at that time, there's been a, a very large amount of them. The war in Aleppo it would appear, as you said, to be coming to a close. What's the significance of Aleppo? Well, Aleppo was Syria's biggest city and really commercial industrial hub in the entire region. It had a strong relationship with Turkey. One of the main objectives of Turkey's current leader, Erdogan, is to to take over Aleppo and indeed they've uh, Turkish forces have looted a large amount of the factories of Aleppo and shipped them out to Aleppo. Some of them have gone to Qatar apparently in the in the Persian Gulf. So it was really strategically important because Turkey's foothold in Syria had a, l a large amount to do with the fact that the Al-Qaeda groups controlled significant territory in Aleppo city. That's not to say that the population in eastern Aleppo was ever anything particularly large. They were talked about 250,000 in eastern Aleppo. It turns out there was much less than that, possibly less than 100,000, and most of them are now out of Aleppo. I think almost 80,000 have been evacuated in the last few weeks from, from eastern Aleppo. But in territory terms, it was greater than that. And so strategically, it was important, the fact that you still hear from the BBC, for example, that Syria is a failed state and it can't control its territory and so on. And X percent of its territory is controlled by the Al-Qaeda groups or the, what they call the rebels. These have all been very misleading because a large part of Syria is desert. And if you include the desert, you're your, your data gets very distorted. But in any case, 
Aleppo is strategic as a commercial industrial hub, as, a, as the second city of Syria, and also because of the way it's located uh, in relation to Turkey, in relation to the eastern part of Syria. The roads from Aleppo pass down to down the Euphrates, down to Raqqa and Derizur, where the oil reserves are. So you can see really that while the Syrian army has, the Syrian government has always given a priority to protecting the populated areas of western Syria, most of eastern Syria is desert, except for the Euphrates and some oases in the desert like Palmyra, for example. Strategically, it's important then to reclaim, really Aleppo is the last of the big eastern cities to be reclaimed, and after that, the Syrians are going to move on Derizur and Raqqa. What about the terrorists being given safe haven to leave the areas? Where are they going to go and what's the consequences of that? Yes, well, at, at the moment, there's more or less two broad processes going on in Syria. One is this uh, process of Musalaha, which is the reconciliation process where the Syrian government agencies, they have a process that they call, I, I can't actually um, say the exact phrase from it, but it's something to do, it's something like regulating the legal affairs, basically. It, it's a type of indemnity, let's say, for people who've been fighters who are Syrians. It doesn't apply to foreigners. If they haven't got blood on their hands, that is to say, if they aren't particularly linked to particular crimes and murders, here's the problem for the White Helmets. A number of the White Helmets from their own videos are indeed linked to the execution of soldiers and civilians. And so this, the stories about the White Helmets fearing execution, actually it's a real fear because a number of them are photographed, videoed, identified, being directly involved in the execution of soldiers and civilians. But those fighters that aren't, and there's a lot that have been purchased, uh, you know they're being paid around about 100 US dollars a month, uh, which is more than most Syrian soldiers. So those ones that go through a process are given a type of indemnity to return to normal life because there's a large number of them. The foreigners aren't given that, aren't given that opportunity. The second process is the, really they've been concentrating or evacuating a number of the, the armed group members to Idlib, the northern province next to Turkey, so that there's now a very large quantity of, of more or less the Syrian government has ignored the, the armed group presence in not all of Idlib but large parts of Idlib, so they've concentrated them there while they focus on getting back to populated areas and a lot of Idlib's been depopulated, it's moved to the coast and to other parts of Syria, to Damascus and so on. So there is a concentration there. They're going to have to resolve that issue at some stage, basically either pushing them into Turkey or carrying out the fight there once they've, once they've secured Aleppo and the surrounds of Aleppo in the west side of Idlib and also in countryside Aleppo where ISIS is. ISIS is right up against Aleppo on the east side of Aleppo. There's been some ISIS presence in Aleppo city, but not so much. It's mainly been the, the Jabhat al-Nusra and its allied groups. How close are we to seeing the end of this aggression against Syria? That's very difficult to say because of the ongoing commitment of the US and its major allies. The Russians just recently have predicted that the full liberation of Aleppo could happen within two days, within 48 hours. After that, there's still uh, fighting in the south in Dara on the border of the occupied Golan by Israel and Jordan and because Israel is still behind backing those groups with arms, with medical training, with other sorts of support, including intelligence, that 
is an ongoing sore. The Turkish funding of these groups supported, let's say, Erdogan's funding of this group, of those, those armed groups across an 800-kilometre border, really makes it extremely difficult to completely resolve the issue. It really, some sort of regime change or serious policy change in Turkey would be necessary for that. On the, the US side of things, it seems likely that regime change in the US, which is going to take place next month, may indeed change something there. If we believe what Trump has said, Trump has said he's going to withdraw from any regime change operations in Syria at least. He seems to be genuine to me in that respect because, after all, it's a losing war and very rarely do incumbents in any sort of political system want to take on the baggage of the previous system when there's nothing to be gained from it. So I believe Trump will indeed withdraw from Syria and then we'll start to see a change because it depends to what extent really Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar have only been involved because Washington has allowed it and allowed them to use US weapons. You know, all of the weapons that ISIS use with their attempts to invade Palmyra and there's a big operation going on in Palmyra at the moment with thousands of ISIS fighters that have come across from Mosul just at the time when Syria is about to liberate Aleppo None of that happens without the green light from Washington. So it remains to be seen to what extent Saudi Arabia and Turkey will be permitted to continue with this large-scale terrorism against Syria after Aleppo is retaken, after the regime change has taken place in Washington, basically. And the role of Russia in the future? Well, Russia is consolidating its position in Syria certainly, and to a certain extent in the Middle East, it's proven to be a valuable ally to the Syrians. The Syrians, the, Russia is really, it's envisaged that Russia is going to have a role in rebuilding, for example, the oil industry in Derizur, for example. The Chinese are already in there as investment partners and with some limited military assistance to their involved in infrastructure projects and they're already involved in rebuilding electricity plant in the north of Syria near the, the Turkish border. So there's a number of large players, Iran of course, really emerging as the dominant player in the entire region in the Middle East. So Russia and uh, Iran and, and China in particular are going to continue to play an important role in Syria because the Western countries have really soiled their image in the region. They backed the regime change in Libya, they backed it in Syria until this day, and really their, their future role in most parts of the Middle East really is really in serious doubt. I mean, remember the US has economic sanctions against Iran still, despite the nuclear agreement. There are still some sanctions against Iraq in certain respects. There are comprehensive sanctions against Syria, which are likely to break down at the European end of things, but the US may or may not maintain them. The US imposed new sanctions against Lebanon late last year, so there's an economic warfare going on, as well as the, the real warfare and the media, the propaganda war going on against the entire region. So the future of Western cooperation or engagement with the Middle East is looking very dubious, in my view. And things aren't going very well for Erdogan at the moment. Well, there were some more terrorist attacks in Istanbul just uh, the other day, so that sort of blowback is, I suppose, what you'd expect. This is what the Syrian president said a number of times. If you use terrorism as a tool, it's going to come back and bite you. And there's going to be a lot of very disillusioned ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra and other types of terrorists from Syria 
fleeing from Syria. Many of them have already gone to Europe. They've infiltrated with the, the refugee groups going into Europe. But the biggest concentrations in Turkey and the Turkish people are going to suffer for this policy of Erdogan wanting to wanting to be the new caliph, a big player in the region, which is which is failing. But it's going to cost the Turkish people, I believe. And even more, the Kurdish people who live in Turkey. And the Kurdish people are the meat and the sandwich there in a way. They've always been pushed around from one side to the other. I mean, large part of the Kurdish population in Iraq and Syria has come from Turkey, precisely from what's been going on within Turkey and the failure to really have some type of settlement within Turkey to do with the Kurdish people. At least I believe, Tim, there's a, a breathing space, the fact that Clinton didn't win. For the people of the region, yeah, whatever the people in the US think about it, the people in the region who have been subject to this, the humanitarian wars of the US Democrats, the Obama-Clinton combination, you know, they've had it with this hypocrisy and doublespeak and the awful, most reactionary backward forces that the US has co-opted, you know, the Wahhabists and the, the head-chopping terrorists trained by the Saudis and Qatar and backed by Turkey. They've had it with this, and, and people, I, I would say, most of the people across the Middle East region are extremely relieved that Hillary Clinton didn't win, and whatever sort of ugly chauvinism Trump represents within the U.S., the fact that the U.S. is, the leadership of the U.S. is going to turn its chauvinism back on itself rather than expand its wars is, is no doubt a source of relief for, for most of the people in the Middle East. Well, half a world away in Cuba, Fidel Castro passed away at the age of 90. The vitriol against him was palpable in the, the West, including here in Australia, by politicians of the right and possibly the left as well. What are his legacies as you see them? Well, there's a tremendous, uh, a tremendous legacy of Fidel Castro's 90 years. I mean, I'm 63 years old, and as long as I've been alive, he's been a leading political figure in Cuba. The uprising at the Moncada barracks was in 1953. So there's a, there's a tremendous legacy there which deserves study, which is very hard to sum up in a short space. But the internationalism of Cuba, for example, which is famous, of, and as you've mentioned, has created doctors around the world in, in over 60 countries. Um, Timor-Leste in particular, um, just compiling some of the documentaries I've made in the last 10 years over that, most of their doctors, over 90% of their doctors, were now trained by the Cubans with that particular ethos of public sector health, preventive and educative public health, for example. Pacific Islands, Cuba is the dominant trainer of doctors in the Pacific Islands now, and Australia really changed its approach to Cuba because of the, the very rapid rise to dominance in terms of doctor training by the Cubans. That's just in our region, you know. The, you could say there have been a number of great resistance leaders in the past, perhaps you know, similar to Fidel, but not many of them went on to be state builders and to build new systems. And it's extraordinary that little Cuba with 11 million people and no great natural resources in terms of food production or, or energy production became the, the largest trainer of doctors in the world, bigger than the WHO, bigger than all the rest of them put together, bigger than the G8, for example alone uh, a system of education free education for its own people which is really the leading education system in latin america in terms of quality for example so all of those approaches there are many more but i think the, the legacy of fidel deserves a much longer study 
And of course, there's the challenges of the revolution itself, and then there was the, the further challenge, apart from the US trying to get rid of him all the time, of when the Soviet Union failed, that they had to reorganise everything then. That's right, yeah. I mean, the Cubans talk about their system as it's based on principles and not an economic model, which is sometimes hard for Westerners, including Western leftists, to get their heads around, really, because we tend to think in terms of models and economic models. But they never planned the economic system that they had with the Soviet Union. They responded to circumstances because the US cut off their entire oil supply soon after the revolution. They had to do this oil-to-sugar deal with the Soviet Union, which kept them in a monoculture of producing sugar to exchange for energy. And to some extent that worked, but it didn't help them really with their industrial and agricultural development over that time. They did commit themselves to this, the root of their economic capacity, which is a huge investment in training their own people. I mean, investing in Cuban people is what they've done the best, basically. And that's why now, even though in the 90s, a bit over 20 years ago, tourism took over from sugar as a big export earner, but health services through this huge, highly trained cater of people trained in science and health and medicine and so on, that's more than double the tourism income. There's about $8 billion a year from health services now. The changes that happened, that when the oil for sugar deal collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a huge economic depression in Cuba in the 1990s. And they've come out of that really in the sense that their external economy, as I said, is now based on human services and then tourism after that and then some other things, minerals and um, pharmaceuticals and, you know, unfortunately for them, tobacco, which is a problem for leading health advocates. But um, the, the diversity of their economy is much greater now. And I think the attention of the last decade has been to lifting salaries and the choices and, and um, income livelihoods of, of local people. That's been Raul Castro's emphasis in the last 10 years. So uh, they quote uh, a, a phrase by Fidel from 2000 which says, revolution is to change everything that needs to be changed. A sense of the historic moment and uh, adhering to the principles of, of the ones that, that Cuba has developed through its history. So they do believe in, in ongoing change basically and that means adaptations of their economic model too so of course now the thing about Cuba strategically now is really you've had two generations of people continue with its revolution against all of the outside predictions they've always said that Cuba is going to fall it's going to collapse and so on it's up now up to the third generation to see if they are going to hang on to their very strong social institutions rather than collapse into a a world of individualism where big corporations rule and that's everyone for themselves. I mean, that's what the neoliberal world is, isn't it? It's everyone for themselves. You look after yourself or you take out some financial insurance, you let the big corporations run everything. The Cubans decided not to do that and to do it their own way. And everyone said, you can't do that, you can't do that. They've done it so far. And uh, as I said, this third generation of young Cubans, it's up to them to see if they're going to carry on with that. I think to a large extent they will. Okay, well, that's my last program for the year, Tim, and I'd like to thank you for your valuable contribution through the year. Thank you very much, Jan. Bye. And that, of course, was Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria Australia and also an academic at Sydney University. And as I said then, this is the last program for the year. I'll be back mid-January next year. Thanks to everyone for listening through the year. It's been great fun. 
and we'll do it all again next week. So stand by for Done By Law. Let's hear from Archie Roach. Bye for now.